Good morning, people of the planet Earth. <clears throat> this is your fellow meat puppet. <laughs> your fellow citizen. Fellow human. Hacker Mike. It is 4.40 in the morning. I've been walking for half an hour already. In a dream state. I got up too early. And my training kicked in. I'm like, get after it, like Jocko said. So I got my coffee. I put on fresh socks. Because no matter what you do, even if you're wearing the same clothes as yesterday, don't wear the same socks, especially for a four-hour walk. And Jocko said, you have to look after your soldier's feet. So always inspect your feet, take care of them. Because there's what, <laughs> they, what, they're what keeps you from from being in a wheelchair. <clears throat> and now I was listening to uh, the survival podcast talking about open source. I mean, open source. And um, Jack Spierk was like, well, I got my web guys to fix my website. So why do I need these open source? And it's like, well, Jack, and the guy who was talking to him, he's like, oh, yes, we have free software and open source, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, wait a second. I mean, you guys should definitely listen to it if you don't know what open source is. Um, but I think the connection there that he should have made with Jack was saying, hey, Jack, the reason why you can hire these web guys at all is because it's the open source. All right. Otherwise, you wouldn't even have the, uh, you wouldn't even be able to hire your web guys to cobble together some WordPress site for you. Wow. Sorry about that, guys. Luckily, um, you're protected by a six foot social distance from me sneezing and not wearing a mask in the middle of nowhere. I hope I didn't burst your eardrums. Maybe I should go back and edit that out. I think I will for courtesy. Sneezing into the mic is not a good idea. Yeah, so... Um, I was listening to that, and it's interesting... But we're on a different level on this podcast. I mean, okay. If you haven't quite figured it out yet, I've been deep into the open source for a long time. And maybe I'm not the best person at explaining stuff to people. Maybe you're just getting some weird view into my mind <clears throat> where I expect everyone to understand everything, to be a cult member. Maybe. So, <clears throat> I mean, free software and the free software manifesto from Richard Stallman, I think he definitely is applying Marxist philosophy to what was already 
a normal behavior, which was to share So, and he calls it copy left instead of copy right. And, um, you know, looking back at this whole thing from, you know, 1984 is when he published his Free Software Manifesto. And it's been a long time, you know, 25 years plus 20 years, 45 years, well, 35 years since then. Um, it's been a long time, and really, the uh, free software type situation has won. But the fight, the communist overthrow has not. And um, just like Marcuse and the and the critical theory, right? The Marxists of the world will have to question why did the people, the worker, not overthrow the oppressor? Right? And question why the revolution failed. Right? So here we get the parallelisms here to uh, critical theory. You know, why is it that the copy left and the free software has not taken over? Well, first of all, Stallman appears as a nut job. You know, eating fungus off of his foot, not bathing for weeks, um, and being generally a weirdo, okay? And then making very strange comments on uh, on his blog, which gets him... Rejected by even his more leftist um, supporters. <clears throat> and let me tell you, I like the idea of uh, free software and open source and all that, but I never really realized what type of people um, are behind Stallman. And if you ever want to meet a bunch of uh, leftists, communists, check it out. Um, but even he got rejected and canceled by his own people in the end. And I guess he's somewhere right now eating his uh, foot jelly in like some place. I don't know. But the guy had a great mind. Definitely a smart guy. Um... <clears throat> And um, I had my own little personal uh, war with him over freedom of usage and freedom of expression. And I didn't realize at the time that I was fighting against the censorship of the left freedom for the greater good of the collective. Didn't realize that, but now I do. So... We really have to uh, look at why Adobe and Photoshop is still in place. 
And first of all, and I do, we do have to borrow some ideas from the commies. And they do come up with some pretty good ideas, like the Marcuse idea, like why is it that people are comfortable? in their in slavery like where you can't you don't even own the software now you just rent it from the man right well first of all um i mean let's just look at it like this first of all from a perspective of someone who's a graphic artist who doesn't want um, let's say he's not adept or doesn't want to spend time getting into details about computing. Let's just say that. Or anyone who doesn't really want to bother um, paying a monthly fee is just a small price of doing business. Because you're paying a monthly fee for everything else. It's like, well, and you put it on your credit card. So you got your monthly fee for your rent, and you got your monthly fee for your electricity, and then you've got your 15 different subscriptions, and you got your internet bill, and you got all these monthly fees, and I was, oh well, I'll just tack on that monthly fee for my Adobe, and then that's it. And people are running a Mac anyway, so but if you're worried about co saving costs, you're not going to be running a Macintosh. So the, the battle is already lost in so many ways that to go to someone like that and then to talk, start preaching about freedom when their entire life is enslaved and they like it that way. I mean, enslaved in the terms of free software uh, perspective, like having no freedom over anything. To go to talk to someone saying you're not free they're gonna just shrug and say what are you crazy whack job with long hair and beard eating your toe fungus telling me right I've got my new MacBook I got my new iPhone I got my car that I'm leasing right I got my $500 headphones got my new fly threads and um and that's it i mean their whole life is based around you know accumulating the dollars <clears throat> making the money being successful in whatever they're doing making pictures doing websites and even if that website is built on open source, that doesn't really matter to them. And maybe they do appreciate it because it gives them the freedom that they need. But maybe they're just doing a job. And maybe their interaction with the world is just purely functional like and transactional. So from a perspective of memes, right? And I've been studying this leftist material, and they're always introducing what is the motivating factor. And, oh, 
there's Mars. There's Mars and there's Venus on two different sides of the sky. It looks like they're getting farther and farther apart every morning. Um, what was I saying? From a mean perspective, from the leftist perspective, it's like, oh, well, we have, we should feel bad. Well, we should feel bad. So let's make a long list of things we should feel bad about, okay? Well, we have the grandma who is living on her own and uh, doesn't have anyone to pick up a prescription. Let's start with that. Now, why isn't grandma living with you? Right? Why is she living on her own? What happened to the multi-generational family? Well, the um, leftists were like, oh, multi-generational families are the most susceptible to the COVID. So we have to end that. Right? And if you have a man working in the house, and they also say, oh, the housing situation, the housing authority is the best thing since sliced bread. It's like, well, wait a second. Have you been to the projects? I have. <clears throat> I accidentally drove through the projects in Trenton, and it's very desperate. It's very. It leaves much to be desired, and it's pretty scary. It's like a scene out of a movie. So, <clears throat> I wouldn't call that a success. And if it's true that they, the husbands aren't allowed to live with the families, um, I think it to get the housing well that is government overreach and that is a really bad thing so <clears throat> but that doesn't matter because we're talking about emotion here so to sell the kool-aid as they said in the podcast I, I love this stuff you have to really listen to the arguments and understand what what's going on so we have to care about the grandma who's being evicted right has no place to go well okay then we have to worry about the people who have smaller jobs and less pay right and they don't want to move because really um, if you don't want to move and there's no jobs where you are then you're in a bad situation but in America in America um, mobility is important and moving to a cheaper place is probably the number one thing you can do to um, help yourself because there's totally different economies and job markets in different places and some places are definitely looking for work workers, but you're not going to have your same context it's gonna to be tougher okay and um, when I was uh, 
talking to someone from the Historical Society of Ewing, they mentioned that Trenton had the biggest paychecks for visibility, and that's why more, more people move there. So I guess people will move to um, for their benefit. Okay. But, uh, so when we look at how memes propagate, and we look at the different base emotions, okay? So the one base emotion that's definitely being played on the leftist is sympathy with abject people. And I agree, that is a great one, because we should have sympathy with abject people, and we should care about them, and we should think about how we can help them. Okay. So they win points with me for that, but then their solutions um, don't make any sense. So that's the um, the jet fuel of the meme is the sympathy, is the emotion, and the um, the payload of your exploit, right? And let's just look at it like an exploit. The payload of the virus is actually something that you really don't want. And I think that's what we can summarize. A lot of these uh, leftist type situations are, yes, they have a great um, premise, but we don't like their conclusion, let's say. Um, they have a great motivation but their implementation is lacking. Okay, well, I'm kind of repeating myself, but I just wanted to go into that. And then we have to say, well, if we look at things that are more familiar to us, as I said yesterday, if you have someone appealing to your nationalism or your, to your independence or your freedom, right? Hey, good morning then you should also question, you know, the emotions behind that and what is actually uh, being sold to you, right? Because again, you have your emotional jet fuel, which is just a different flavor, right? And you have people who are more emotional and more sympathetic and you have people, let's say, who are less sympathetic. So then you'll have some anti-sympathetic jet fuel. You'll say, well, look at these deject people. You know, we should have no sympathy for them. Right? And that is then the, um, that is then the, uh, the other more negative emotions. Okay. And that's going to feed another set of solutions, which are not very good either. But people aren't really thinking about the conclusions. They're not thinking about what's actually going to happen. And it's hard to think about them because you don't know what the actual consequences are of something.
And that's kind of what we're getting into here. So what are the consequences of something? Can we prove it to be true or false? We don't know. Are we in a paradox? Do we even know the truth? Or we're just working on hypotheses? And a lot of times we are just working on hypotheses. We're just trying stuff out. We don't really know for sure. Nobody really knows for sure. So it's like, well, pick a side, pick your poison, and I see a fox. Now, yesterday I read that foxes are actually related to wolves. Like, they're in the wolf family, so that's interesting. <clears throat> my dog, my dog died, Dora. I'm still processing it. We quite, cried quite a bit, but she was old. She died of, let's say, natural causes. And the doctor tried to... Uh, the doctor at this emergency medical center in Robbinsville, New Jersey, they're like, well, well, why don't you go home and mortgage your house? Or better yet, you can just hand me the keys right now. You know? She actually suggested we open up a credit card to pay for her. I'm like, well, we don't have the money. We don't have the $2,000 to spend on hospitalizing the dog. And then she starts attacking us and playing us against each other. I mean, it was a real... Um, look at these deer. The one's like sleepy. She's like, oh, I want to sleep here. Why are you waking me up? Let me take a picture if I can. I'll even turn the flash on. Here we go, dear. Let's try to do that again. Let's get closer. How close can I get to this deer? So, So we don't know. And um, you know how I said, well, let's think about ourselves as being in some type of cryptographic system where we don't understand it. Well, let's add in, we're in some cryptographic system that we don't understand. And we're testing hypotheses going back and forth. We're in an endless loop where every time we we do this humongous calculation. It says, well, the premise that you had is false. So we go back and we have to switch the bit again and then we come back and it's like, well, that's a contradiction. And every time we do something, we come up with a contradiction, right? 
So we're in some nasty girdle paradox, right? Trying to solve some cryptographic function. We're running out of time, right? We have no idea what this data is. We got the monster chasing us, right? The drill bits of the it's coming down the tunnel to squish us, right? That is the situation we're in. Okay, that's like the constructed situation that we're put in and um, in many ways I think this system is to keep people from being complacent to move us forward and to um, you know everyone is is ranking on about you know going off the gold standard and how we are the um, victims of the Federal Reserve, and I understand that. Um, well, let's just address that for a second. Let's just assume for a second that they're right. But let's also assume that our system would have collapsed. We would have been Russia, right? If it wasn't for so basically the system collapsed it wasn't working and they had to come up with a replacement system and the replacement system is to basically inflate the economy I mean Reagan added in more trillions than anybody else okay and he bankrupted the Soviets it's like a game of chicken he was like hey um, why, how much are you willing to spend, right? Now, mind you, Russia has an economy that's smaller than California. It's like number seven, and the state of New York has a larger GDP than Russia, okay? So we have to keep that in mind as well. So we get this um, overinflated economy, and that's just the price of survival at this point. We can't change it. And yes, we went off the gold standard, and yes, the banks are playing with us. But let's just assume for a second that having um, negative interest rates is to keep people from saving, to destroy their savings. And maybe we're being pushed into an unstable situation, so we're constantly having to stay moving constantly searching for value or profit. And um, I think that is the situation we're in. And if the uh, I 
I mean, we don't know what situation we're in. That's the other thing. We just don't know. We can try and model it, but we don't really know what it is. So in a lot of these respects, I do agree with the postmodern theories. But I would just replace the whole idea of there are no meta-truths, there is no objective truth, to um, you know, we don't know the absolute truth. And that again is another paradox. So it's really difficult. It's like we don't know the absolute truth, but how would we know that we don't know it? Right? So we're kind of getting back into this. So we're living in a paradox. The time is ticking. The monster's coming to eat us. And everything is encrypted. We don't understand it. We don't have the keys. That's the situation we're in. All right. So that's my intro for today. And um, now, just to keep you motivated, we're going to play some clips from more eloquent people who will tell you things to get you fired up, to fuel your fire, because people need to have some rocket fuel for their engines here. So what rocket fuel are we going to pick today? Well, we'll see. I'll pick something randomly from my list of podcasts and we'll start uh, clipping it. How's that sound? We'll spin the wheel. That'd be pretty cool, right? I guess I could just use a random number generator. How's that? I'll count how many episodes I have downloaded. I'll get a random number generator and I'll pick a random number between them. And we'll just start playing that. Of course, it has my bias of selection. So you're just selecting from my deck of cards from the dealer and they stack the deck against you. <coughs> but hey, sounds like fun, right? I got one bullet in the chamber. Spin it. All right, guys, let's go. Okay, that was cool. Number 66. So I don't have ability. I just guess at 100. And I used uh, some random number generator off the Googles. Came up with 66, so I just swiped to the right 66 times in my download list. And I got the Jocko podcast, talking about telling the truth to your employees. So these are some of the episodes that he's done when he's run out of guests, or he's trying to basically advertise his company. Um... <clears throat> Because COVID's hit, and um, he's got a whole bunch of those uh, self-promotion type podcasts. I just downloaded one today with John Stryker Meyer. Oh my God, I have to listen to that. If you ever listen to John Stryker Meyer stuff, that guy's really inspiring. He's the uh, SOG, Special Forces in um, Vietnam, where he jumps out of a helicopter with no weapon to save his guys and hits the trees. I mean, <laughs> you gotta be crazy to do that. Um, 
yeah, definitely, uh, definitely uh, an amazing guy to listen to if you have the time. John Stryker, S-T-R-Y-K-E-R, Meyer. So yeah, let's play this clip from Jocko. And I like this roulette idea, so we're going to keep on doing this. Um, we're not going to listen to his whole podcast, but I picked out some of the good part. He's like, you have to be truthful to yourself as a leader. And, you know, this is getting into this whole truth thing. Like, what do we know? What are the risks? And do you believe the government when they say, oh, yeah, it's just going to be two weeks. We're just shutting down for two weeks. Like, do you actually believe that? And if you believe that, are you failing your people? Right? Are you failing your people? And if you're believing a lie and then passing that lie on, are you exhibiting good leadership? And this is also getting into this whole logic thing. Like if we choose each no time you do a recursion, every time you get to the end and you're like, well, our, our th hypothesis has been disproven. You know, we're getting to the end and we're just going to loop over again. Is that good leadership, right? Are you applying good leadership or are you just blindly following some algorithm? Right? So can you break out of the, of the loop, the endless loop, by applying leadership skills? By saying, wait a second, this is not... Um, we're in a loop here. We're just going over and over the same stuff again. Like, detach, take a step back, observe what's going on, look at it from a different perspective. And don't just fo blindly follow what's going on. So I think that's uh, an interesting um, and useful lesson from Draco. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, let's play this clip. The cool part about talking about leadership all day, every day is like, I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. And the conversations we're having are these real time problems that these companies are struggling with. And when we come up with a solution, it makes a huge impact. And I think the connection I was making when we were talking to it is how useful that can be. You don't have to be at this company for the lesson and the takeaway to be useful for you. So I think this stuff is pretty universal. The first company, this first conversation we were having, mm -hmm. it came up recently. And the thing that's crazy about it, I probably had four different companies that I've been working with just in the last couple weeks, all dealing with the exact same thing. COVID hits, it's early March, the whole thing, everything kind of shuts down. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things we were talking about, you talked about this on, on one of our very first EF Online sessions is you got to tell your people the truth. And this is an emotional time. You got to stay detached from the emotion, but you have to tell your people the truth. And one of the things I think a few people did was in their, their concern about making their people worried is they said, hey, there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be fine. We're not letting anybody off. We're not going to make any big movements. And so in the, the interest of keeping people calm, they said something that in, in, in the short term actually kept them pretty calm. Hey, you got nothing to worry about. Well, let me ask you this. Was what they were saying the truth? So, no, it wasn't the truth. <laughs> I was going to say, because there's a, you, can, you can 
pre-identify the issue that you're going to have when the out of the gate, what you're saying is n- not the truth. Yeah. And here's what you got to watch out for is you might think that you understand. You might think you understand and you kind of bolster your opinion up because you know it's the easy way. It's the easy way to roll. So I look and go, hey, you know what? This virus is hitting. It's going to last a month. You know what? We can. We got enough funds. We'll be fine. We're not laying anyone off. That's the truth as you see it. Mm-hmm. The part that you're missing is you don't know. That's the part that you're missing. And and if you remember early on when we were talking in Echelon Front, I said, hey, this is a virus that's going to run its course. It, just like when you get sick as a human being with a virus, look, when you get a bacterial infection, guess what? You go and you take antibiotics and it cleans you up. That's just what you do. With a virus, there's no there's no antibiotics. It runs its course, and then it's you spend three days in bed, and then when it's over, it's over. You lose, you know, five eight pounds of whatever because you can't eat or you're sick or you're throwing up, and then you get done and it's over, and and then you go back to normal life. And I and I just thought to myself, okay, this is a virus that's going to run its course, it, and you just extrapolate that out to the nation and you say, okay, well, the virus, that's what I did. Okay, the virus is gonna run its course. And, and, and actually, when you, look at, when you look at the world, many places, that's exactly what it looks like. There's a massive spike, the virus runs its course, and then it's kinda gone. Uh, the, you know, if you look at Italy right now, massive spike, people dying, it's awful, and then it's over. It runs its course. So that was, that was my opinion of what was gonna happen. But if you remember, when we talked about what we were gonna do at Echelon Front, I said we could breath hold through this thing. Meaning, hey, we could just be like, okay, batten down the hatches, let this thing get, go through, and we'll be back on the road in two months, and we'll be back to normal business. But there was enough of an, there's enough of an ego control mechanism in place that I was said to myself, hey, I think that's what's gonna happen, but I don't know that that's what's gonna happen. So I didn't convince myself that that was the truth. I said, hey, this is what I think will happen, but we're not gonna do a breath hold. We're gonna make proactive changes right now, make adjustments because I don't know how long this thing's gonna last. I'll tell you how long I think it's gonna last, but I don't know that. So therefore, we are going to make adjustments right now to be ready. If this thing, work, if this thing is over in two months, great. We'll, we'll, we'll carry on. If it's not over, if it lasts for three months or five months or six months or a year, we're making adjustments right now to be able to contend with that sort of a future. So out of the gate, when you start thinking about these things as a leader, you not only have to tell the truth, you have to make sure that you are telling the truth to yourself about what you know and what you don't know. So to come out of the gate when something like this hits and say, we're gonna be fine, you know, everything's good, we don't have to. All right, this is great. So next number was 77, which was a podcast we already played. And clipped on the show, the, um, that was a good show on the true cost of climate change. Um, and the guy was making a case for investing that money, not into outdated solar cells, but into technology for better solar cells. Now, so I skipped over that. I skipped over Free Talk Live. I skipped over all the episodes we've clipped before. 
And then I got into this one sexism in the 2016 election. Let me get you the exact title. Robert G. Boatwright and Valerie Sperling, Trumping Politics as Usual, Masculinity, mis Misogyny in the 2016 Election. And um, this lady is going to list how Trump was appealing to misogyny in, uh, or how he is a misogynist in disrespecting women in many ways. Um, in the 2016 election, and uh, I think it's good to uh, hear her out because she definitely brings up some good points. And um, and uh, you know, it's very possible that uh, America's not ready for a woman uh, president at this point, and it, that him being against women like that or expressing, you know, the misogynist type uh, sentiment that that is actually something that is um, fueling his, uh, fueling his uh, campaign and is expressing some kind of subconscious, um, subconscious uh, sentiment maybe even something that is uh, I mean I don't know it's very uh, it's very strange but I think it's she's definitely worth listening to and uh, the arguments are very well made So I think gender and sexism were sort of unusually central to the 2016 presidential campaign. Um, gender and sexism come up in, as far as I can tell, all political contests, uh, really um, of any kind. Of course, maybe that's because I study gender norms and I find them particularly interesting. And so they, you know, they, they, it, it all depends. You know, maybe that's the maybe that's the street light that I'm looking around under. Um, but I, but I would just sort of preface all this by saying that. You know, masculinity, femininity, um, misogyny, homophobia, these things, once you start looking for them, they do come up in, you know, in, in lots of different political uh, contexts. But I think in the 2016 elections, what we were finding in the, in the book was that A, having a woman at the top of one ticket, and B, having not just a man, but a sort of overt, explicit, recidivist misogynist at the top of the other ticket, really put the focus on gender and, uh, and sexism in the 2016 election. And of course, you could see that in the general election. Um, but I would also just take a quick step back and say, if you think back to the Republican primary and what a peculiarly graphic masculinity contest that was, you know, where Never before, I mean, I, I'm not an Americanist, right? I, I study Russia, but to the best of my knowledge, you know, never before did you have candidates kind of competing over the relative size of their um, genitalia. <laughs> and, you know, it was just very strange um, the degree to which masculinity uh, was publicly contested um, in that primary. 
And Rob, would you mind just pushing in again, we're, we're speaking to a really big audience and maybe an audience in the future and students who won't remember the campaign buttons and some of the other things that you pull out in the book that that I think for all of us, we're, we're used to it. And so it seems so ordinary, but can you just remind people of some of the worst offenses and, and the kinds of things that were being said? Uh, can I defer to Valerie on that one, actually? She saves one, keeps kind of a running tally of what she thought was worst. <laughs> sure, sure. So if we go back to, um, if we go back to the general election then, right in 2016, there is the sort of straightforward sexism that Trump displayed um, in the moment of the campaign, right? So talking about Hillary Clinton in terms of her looks, or going back to the primary even, talking about Carly Fiorina, and you know he made comments about like her face, and can you imagine that that would be the face of the U.S. you know the U.S. president and um, you know, and he, he also attacked Clinton in terms of how she looked. He made these comments about how he walks behind her and isn't impressed. Uh, you know, and then there were other, uh, there were other kind of high points, right? Uh, like when he addressed um, Megyn Kelly, right, the reporter, and said, you know, she had asked him a slightly challenging question about some of his previous sexist statements. And you know, afterwards he said, oh, she had blood coming out of her, you know, wherever, <laughs> you know, in this sort of biologically essentialist way, you know, trying to reduce um, a professional to her, you know, to her bodily, to her bodily function. So there were things like that. There was also, of course, in October, uh, really right before the election, um, there was that moment when uh, the Access Hollywood tapes were released. And this, you know, wasn't a recent um, and this wasn't a recent event. This was something that had been taped in, I want to say, 2005, where Billy Bush, the host of Access Hollywood, was speaking uh, to Trump. They were on their way to a taping, and Trump went off um, on what later I think was called like the Pussygate moment, right? Talking about how when you're a star, you can just walk up to attractive women, and and uh, Trump bragged about having uh, about having done this, and he said you can just grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. So there were those kinds of moments of sexism that leapt into the public sphere uh, in, in ways that I think are, you know, were uh, unusual for American politics. Now this is really an interesting um, next clip. And <laughs> I didn't use the random number generator, I just went forward 10. Um, and we got to this lady who's talking about uh, post-Soviet studies. And it's really interesting to see cultural Marxism being applied to itself. So she's applying critical theory like colonial studies to Russia and saying it doesn't fit. We can't fit Russia into the colony but she says the inside other. And I really, I really can identify with that because as a software developer and a non-software developing group, I feel like I am the inside other. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's either you're in a software development company or you're in a non-software development company. Well, I'm actually in a non-software development company, but embedded as a software developer, so to say. So I'm the inside other. 
I'm inside the company, but I am not part of them. And the other, the software development team. This necessary evil. And I think I should do a little bit more studies about the inside other to understand it better, really. Okay. Um, yeah, so we're going to play some two clips from her. It's going to be a long one. But I think um, for those listeners who actually have been listening to all of our podcasts, and that's basically nobody, but this is good stuff. And um, hey, you know, we might one day have a new listener come in and say, wow, Mike has been doing shows every day for so long. Let me go back and study some of his episodes. Wow. And look at that. Maybe. I doubt it. I guess we're creating a legacy here. We're creating something. Most likely it'll be used against me in some court of public opinion at some point. I'm just hanging myself with a noose. Right? For uh, self-aggrandizing myself. Right? So I should be ashamed for opening my mouth. Because my head's just full of shit and that's all that comes out. Right? But, um, well, welcome to my therapy session, okay? So we're going to go from, see, this is it. This is the flip. This is the flip. It's like, well, is our podcast good? Come to the conclusion, well, there's a paradox. No, it cannot be good, so it's bad. And then we disprove that it's bad, and then we're going to prove that it's good again. And we're going to disprove that it's good. And then we're going to assume that it's bad. Then we're going to disprove that it's bad. Then we're going to assume that it's good. So we're going to just go back and forth. Yeah. Not happening here, kids. Got to stop that. All right. Here we go. We got two clips coming up from this lady. Let's play them. And I'll even give you how long they are. So you can skip over them if you need to. Well, the first clip is 3 minutes 40, and um, it's, so next 10 minutes or so, 8 minutes of the Russian lady, but she's actually quite coherent, so I think it's worth listening to. And then we're going to go to the next random show. started working with Walter Mignola, who is one of the decolonial theorists, and Walter works a lot with knowledge, with epistemologies, with decolonizing knowledge, let's say, and in the last 10 years with, uh, with uh, aesthesis, as we call this, or like a, a, the aesthetic part of, of decoloniality. And I think that was initially that attracted my attention because I wanted to reflect on um, Russia, on the Russian Empire, both Tsarist Empire and the Soviet Union from this imperial colonial point of view. Uh, and as I said, there was no language in Russia for that. Still, there isn't any language for that even today. Um, so I got interested and there were several categories in the colonial option that I found fruitful. 
uh, and I started developing them more. Uh, for example, one of such categories that uh, actually fits very well when we think about Russia is the imperial difference. Uh, and I don't think you can find this category in post-colonial studies, uh, which is, as we said, predominantly Anglophone and British empire-centered. Uh, what is imperial difference? Uh, it's, it's a difference between different sorts of empires, we can say, in different uh, um, you know, classes of empires or leagues even. Uh, and if, right. if we talk of modernity, if we look at modernity in a, in a wider sense, not only starting from the Enlightenment, but earlier from the 16th century, uh, from the discovery of Americas, right, from uh, the point which is important for the colonial option because it, cla it claims, the, colonial, the coloniality claims that uh, modernity starts uh, precisely at the point when Columbus uh, goes to the New World, right? And when uh, capitalism, early forms of capitalism, Christianity, uh, and the, the invention of race in the way we know it now come together. Uh, and uh, th this is uh, like the, the point that triggers modernity into being. Uh, so so uh, if we take this frame, then uh, in the imperial difference is the difference between the empires that are constantly um, uh, rivals of each other, right? Uh, and in modernity, in the first two centuries, uh, it's uh, Spain, it's Portugal, uh, it's Italy that are leading the game, so to say. But then, uh, as we know uh, from history, they are displaced by the British Empire, by France, uh, today by the United States, of course, uh, which uh, is again an interesting case that because it starts as a colony, right, but then becomes very much a proto-imperial state. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, and in this frame, if you take this frame, what is Russia then? Russia is a very strange kind of empire. It's an empire that is constantly trying to catch up and leave behind the West, right? So it's trying to uh, make itself uh, accepted into the this first league of empires, and it never succeeds. And from the start, uh, within um, the world system, so to say, the economic and social system, uh, Russia Russia is is uh, very much a second hand, a second rate empire, we can say. And that is important because it creates uh, an area of complexes, an area of uh, dualities, an area of very strange kind of um, uh, divisions. Uh, because uh, I, in, in my early works, I even called it a Janus-faced empire, meaning that it has one mask or one face looking in the direction uh, to the West and a different face looking in the direction of its uh, Asian colonies or Caucasus colonies, for instance, right? Uh, and, and I think that is very important to understand uh, when, we, when we speak about uh, Russia uh, uh, in imperial sense. And this is something mm -hmm. that we still can see even today, uh, because I right. think that a lot of today's reactions and very unhealthy kind of, you know, behavior <laughs> that we see there is also yeah. actually very much within the same logic, right? Okay, we are not accepted as, as somebody from the first league, and then we will behave in this way. Right. And I, yeah, right. so I, I, I totally see this in politics today there. The, the, story, the story from wounded pride to aggressive patriotism is, is it's, a, it's a very common story in a short path, one might say, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Could, could, you, could you tell us how you decided to 
So I'd like to start for our listeners, um, Medina, by asking you to describe what motivated you in this topic. What motivated you to write the book? Um, Actually, I have been working on this topic on and off for the last 30 years, I would say, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the topic in larger terms is an attempt to think post-Sovietness as a human condition, particularly in a situation when the condition changed almost overnight and millions of people were faced with the necessity of rethinking their lives and their future. And that was my situation as well. And in that sense, it's not that I got interested in the topic, but rather... I would say I had no I had no choice. I was kind of forced to think about it. Um, and my trajectory as a scholar, my academic trajectory, in some ways helped me to come to this book, to writing this book. I was trained as an Americanist uh, in American studies. I was majoring in U.S. literature, and my early works were on that. Uh, Actually, both of my dissertations also focused on the U.S. literature. But the second one is already a move in the the direction of what I'm doing now, because I dealt with American multiculturalism and the way it gets expressed in fiction and contemporary literature. Uh, And while working on this topic, I discovered for myself those relatively new areas of research that did not exist in the late Soviet academic system at that time, such as critical race studies, post-colonial studies, indigenous studies, gender studies, and so on. It was important for me uh, research-wise and also personally because I come from two minorities, from two ethnic groups that were uh, living in so-called Russian and later, we can say, Soviet colonies, racialized, non-European, predominantly Muslim groups. So I have I have been always discriminated as somebody belonging to these groups in Russia, as an internal other. And I was struggling to, to somehow come to terms with this positionality, to reflect on it, not in those prescribed terms, Soviet terms, that we had, you know, at our disposal, but also not entirely in Western terms that um, were important for me, but they did not necessarily work properly in relation to my local history. So for me, from the start, it was a reflection on the failure of the fake Soviet federalism and fake theatrical Soviet multiculturalism on the inability of the Soviet system to cope with difference and diversity, on the abruptness of this shift uh, from the second world to the void, because this is how uh, many post-socialist authors and critics started to describe our positionality after the end of the Cold War, that we are the void, we are the non-region, as the Eastern European scholars would say. And also, as someone born in 1970, Uh, Of course, you realize that the first 20 years of my life took place in the Soviet Union, and I belong to one of the many lost generations you can find there, right? Uh, Right. When the USSR collapsed, I was barely 20, and I was also at the time in the U.S. Uh, I was a Moscow State University student doing a study abroad program in the United States. And I think I have this anecdote in my book 
so literally I left one country and I returned to a completely different one. Uh, and then I think I started looking for the ways to reflect on this new condition, on this new existential situation we were entering collectively, but also in very different ways, depending on our intersectional situations, personal situations. Um, one obvious shift, for instance, for me was racism, uh, which stopped to be masked because in Soviet times, of course, there were a lot of racists, you know, but it was masked under proletarian internationalist slogans. So one couldn't be openly racist, even if some of the biopolitics was openly racist, of course. Uh, and in that sense, I was not alone. There were many artists, writers, activists, journalists, filmmakers who attempted to conceptualize this post-Soviet human condition and also somehow deal with their proto-post-colonial sensibility that started to emerge uh, in very interesting ways with this post-Soviet duress, I should say. But there were no people in the 90s writing about this in Russian. I started doing it then. I published several books on the topic and many articles. But there was an interesting gap that I kind of observed even then. My fellow critics, theorists, academics, they refused to see or acknowledge this frame, the possibility even of this frame of looking at things. While contemporary writers were hungry for such a critique. In other words, for example, Andrei Volas, a Russian writer who is a typical case of a Russian post-colonial writer reflecting on his life in Tajikistan as a Russian other and fascinated with the Orient, or Afanasi Mamedov, a wonderful Azeri Jewish writer, realizing Russian language, experimenting with rhythms, with motives. They were interested and surprised, actually, to discover that they can be interpreted through a post-colonial lens, that their work with the same categories, concepts, metaphors as Salman Rushdie or Peter Carey does, without knowing it, without being exposed to the post-colonial discourse, and canon. Uh, and also around that time, while becoming more uh, knowledgeable in post-colonial theory, I also realized, or I started realizing that this theory works very well for the British Empire uh, and uh, for, for, the empire, for, for the colonies of the British Empire, but this, it does not quite work in the same way in the case of Russian Empire and its colonies and quasi-colonies. And also that post-colonial discourse uh, is too descriptive. And basically, it explains the exotic other to the same, to the West, using the language of the West, such as post-structuralism, post-Marxism. So I, I sort of started realizing that we needed to rethink the imperial colonial paradigm in relation to such empires as Russia and their colonies, uh, that they kind of fall out of the of the norm of the standard mostly yeah. anglophone norm you know uh, and and also luckily around that time i read one of the first works that relate to decolonial collective uh, the so-called decolonial collective which is different from post-colonial theory and studies which uh, originates in latin america mostly of course, uh, now uh, the, the, the preeminent decolonialists, they live in the United States or in Europe, uh, but at that point, many of them still resided in, in Latin America. Uh, so um, I found it much more promising. 
uh, in points of uh, reflecting on the post-socialism uh, and, and post-colonialism and the intersections. And around 2000, I started working with, with these ideas, and I started also collaborating with Walter Mignola, one of the preeminent decolonialists with whom we co-authored many articles and a book, have organized many events, uh, and also later with other people from the colonial group, which is becoming more and more international now, and particularly in my case, of course, since I deal with feminism, with, with the colonial feminists like Maria Lugones, who unfortunately uh, has just passed away. Uh, so then, then came my monograph uh, on gender, on gender epistemologies and Eurasian borderlands, which already was written from the decolonial feminist perspective. And at the same time, I shifted from literary studies as such to a sort of anti-disciplinary, transdisciplinary mode in which I'm still residing and writing today. Um, right. So, so yeah, uh, I, I think that there was a combination of, uh, of this collapse of the Soviet Union and also my personal situation and as this internal other. I'm trying to make sense of it and looking at different theories that were at that point available outside the, the, uh, this uh, socialist space and Soviet space uh, and trying to see what, is it enough or do we want a different theory? That was the, uh, the point that kind of uh, yeah, triggered me, yeah. I think. I, I, I want to... I... Well, that was interesting. And now I'm just going to pick another topic to continue myself, dealer's choice, <clears throat> we're going to listen to the history of the left in America. And I'm going to start a new way to do this, is I'm actually going to interrupt the guy when he says something that I don't like. And the first thing that I'm going to interrupt on is he says these two nations of America and Russia, but really, we know we're talking about two empires. We're not even talking about two nations. Because the nations and the people of Russia and America really don't have a problem with each other. It's really the empires of America and Russia that have a problem with each other. And <clears throat> it's really quite interesting what he says that, you know, the elite of America have a problem with the idea of the revolution, obviously. But also the people have a problem with the revolution of the Bolsheviks. Especially if it doesn't work. And let's just say that we're late adopters and we say, hey, you know, why don't you guys try this stuff out and tell us how it works? And you know what? It didn't work. All right. So whatever we had, whatever we had as bad as it is, as it could be, and whatever criticism it deserves, you know, at least we can talk about it without being sent to the gulag. So that collectivism has not worked and has been rejected. Um, and it's good that uh, we let them try it out. And also, we also have to understand that <clears throat> the Russians actively sabotaged other communist movements that were outside of their empire. The Soviet empire would sabotage the Greeks and the Yugoslavs and the Albanians because they were outside their sphere of influence. And they said, well, it would be better for them to be crippled than to be free as communists. But, you know, we don't want a communist Albania having ties with China. We want vassal states. 
<clears throat> so that's another thing we have to understand is like empires and when we really see that communism has really produced not nation states or empires or whatever but there hasn't been a worldwide movement and it hasn't been anywhere near the utopia that was uh, promised but I do think that from an analysis of power it is useful to think and look at the methods and the people the ultra elite who were actively fighting against communism as this guy said and look how it happened so we can learn something I think that's a great idea well let's play this first part of the clip and we got some more clips to go oh and it wouldn't be the stream of random if I can't just interrupt myself with some insights on a completely different topic before we continue So, I'm really caught up in this whole idea of endless loops and um, <clears throat> how to stop them. And um, time limitations or sampling, I think, is also important. You know, in agile work, everything is time boxed. So you have this feedback loop going, but you're setting goals and you're um, you're uh, getting feedback and you're creating that feedback loop um, with fixed increments of time. So I think that's also an interesting way to look at it if you're going to be in that endless loop. To have a certain sampling and a regular uh, process of reflecting over what's happening, feeding the decision. I guess they're trying to formalize decision making in some way, <sighs> creating a Turing machine that's being simulated in the Turing machine. It's like, oh yeah, guys, here's some logic for you guys to try and execute and simulate. So, trying to raise people up to a higher level of consciousness by feeding them the right input. I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know. I do believe that higher levels of consciousnesses are not just referenced. They're built, and only by practice will you build them. So I guess giving someone a program to follow to build up a consciousness is one way to do it, building the circuits, and then maybe they'll spark up into a moment of self-awareness. We'll see. And I guess that sparking of self-awareness, that reflection, that coming together of all the points, that aha moment, that epiphany, that moment of enlightenment, that's what we're looking for, isn't it? But I think that, again, is just 
the neural imprint being set. That flash, that imprint that's creating a, a, road, a road mark, a sign, a road sign. It's just planting the flag and saying, oh, here's some dopamine, here's a reward. You reach this goal, you reach this achievement, you unlock this achievement. <clears throat> and you can go back and look at your achievements and go revisit them. Uh, maybe that's all it is. Maybe enlightenment is constructed. Okay, anyway, that's a little interlude. And now let's get back to our main program. If we step back from the moment and, you know, with the advantage of hindsight, we can see that for much of the 20th century, the Soviet Union was the United States's ideological foil. Do you think that's something that we can find in 10 Days That Shook the World itself? Does Reed's work foreshadow that? or What does it tell us? about the kind of relationship that will emerge between the United States and the Soviet Union? I think that he, like Lenin in some ways, in 1917, believed that there could be a good relationship between the two. Um, he and Lenin talk about this. It's not reflected so much in his book, but they talk about how the United States and the, and the Soviet Union at that time don't really have direct areas of conflict in the world, like trade and other sorts of things. And so there's no reason why they can't be friendly, even though they appear to be ideologically at odds. Mm -hmm. But you have to remember at the time that being a socialist or a communist in the United States, up until about this moment, was not seen as to be a negative thing necessarily. Um, you know, Eugene V. Debs, who was a quite famous candidate for president. And we might add a socialist candidate for, for yeah, so, president. Yes, yeah, a socialist candidate. Ran mm -hmm. in 1912 and got six or seven percent of the vote and got over a million votes, and so um, so I think the, the the fear that's generated is one that is quite distinctly intentional by a small group of people among the elite because what they saw happen in Russia was the nobles and landowners and people with status lost what they had, and I think that creates a, generates a fear not only in the United States, but sort of worldwide, that if you allow sort of Bolshevism into your country, then you have chaos and you'll, and you'll have a destruction of the, of the system that exists. Do you assign 10 days that shook the world in any of your <laughs> classes? Uh, I never have, actually. And, 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 the re and the reason is, I've been teaching Russian history for 20 years at College of DuPage, and the reason is I, that I don't is that I think that it's very difficult for students to read and understand in the historical sense what's going on. Because there are lots of names, lots of dates, lots of locations, and lots of acronyms. Because the Soviets were in love with acronyms for everything. But I think, though, that it's it's something that um, is absolutely a, a valuable resource to give you a glimpse at that moment. Because the question of the Soviet Union in my lifetime, in the 20th century, uh, growing up, was always sort of a, always cast in stone. So when I was in high school and college in the 1980s, there was no debate. It just, and where this was this? It, I finished high school in Nebraska. Nebraska, okay. And part of what got me interested in Russian studies was the fact that all of my classmates would sit and tell me that this is the evil empire, this is the time of Reagan, 
And I can remember very distinctly as a sophomore in high school, listening to the wisdom of my 16-year-old classmates tell me that we needed to preemptively nuke all Russians because they were evil people. And I thought, that can't really be true. <laughs> and so I think what we see now in the past 25 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union is a kind of unraveling of that mythology. So why do, why are we so hardened against this country? Why, what's the point? And why are they so hardened against us? And I think what, you'll, what we already have found and will continue to find is that there's a great deal of diverse voices from both the Soviet side, Russian side, and the American side that the Cold War wasn't necessarily as cold as we thought it was. So do you think that Reed provides an insight at a particularly fluid moment in the relationship between these two nations? I think I think the key thing that Reed provides for the readers in 1919 when they read his book and still today, he provides a positive, um, detailed, credible, firsthand account by an accessible American, somebody who writes well, somebody who can <laughs> explain things, and – the question I ask my students when I introduce it to them is, is what would make an American, Harvard-educated, from Oregon, not necessarily very ideological, what would make him observe these events and become such a true believer? And that's true of other people at the time, too, other Americans who witnessed it. What makes it so attractive? Why is this revolution so attractive to these people who have no stake in it? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no reason for him, for him to care. He, go home, he can go home and do something else. And so I think that that's one of the things that I use his work and, and others to sort of stress to my students is, is what makes these Americans, you know, jump in so far. We don't want to try to pretend the Soviet Union was heaven on earth. It was a poor country, and you also ask the question, at what cost? When you go from a, a country that's 75% peasant in 1917 and become an urban industrial country within 20 years, a process that took 150 years in Germany, in France, in Britain, in the United States, and you compress that into 20 years, when you have that kind of social reorganization of society, there's going to be a lot of social tension uh, a lot of pressures on families and on individuals. And so it was, in some ways, as a consequence of its dynamism, also a fairly brutal process. You know, when Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, they did not think the, re- the revolution, the socialist revolution, would happen in poor, underdeveloped countries. Nor did Lenin. Lenin always thought it would happen in Germany or France. He never expected the Russian Revolution to become the vanguard of the worldwide socialist revolution. Uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were mainly fighting to end the monarchy in 1905 or 1910 or 1915. It was a consequence of World War I. As Lenin explained, the revolution happened not where the social conditions for socialism were really ripe, but where imperialism was weak. In other words, he said this really wasn't, we weren't ready for socialism. He said, but we were the weakest link in the imperialist chain. It broke there. The revolution broke it because of the war. And so Russia had its revolution. When Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, all of the leaders, uh, looked out and saw the world in 1917 after they made the revolution, they said, well, we can win, but only if Germany has a socialist revolution so that we come to our aid. And Lenin said, soon as the advanced capitalist countries have their revolution, we won't be the vanguard. We'll be like looking to them. We'll be looking to them for assistance culturally, economically. 
but the other revolutions didn't come. Well, there was a revolution in Germany and in Hungary. Uh, it all happened in 1918, but the capitalists overcame it. They didn't have a Bolshevik-type party capable of taking advantage of the revolution and seizing and holding power. So the Soviet Union became isolated, so isolated, the most sanctioned, embargoed, blockaded country in the world. We know about the blockade in Cuba. Well, the Soviet Union was completely blockaded. So this poor, illiterate country that had a war and then a civil war and famine had come back by 1920, uh, nobody would trade with it. The worldwide capitalist power said, we're going to destroy it. We're going to snuff it out. We're going to strangle it. And as a consequence, the Soviet Union had to develop on a basis of complete self-reliance on its own indigenous industry rather than having the benefits of worldwide trade. Mm -hmm. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it was declared the end of history, right? I mean, socialism was tried and failed. Capitalism would rule to the end of time. As a socialist, what's your response? Well, it's a very important question because the hubris and arrogance of the apologists of imperialism and capitalism was so at such a high point in 1991 and 92 where they thought, well, or and told the world, well, you see, socialism was tried. They conflated socialism with a government, the Soviet Union. It was tried in the Soviet Union, and that government failed. That means socialism failed. And thus, history has stopped because we went from early primitive society, as they would call it, to feudal society, to capitalist society. But this is it. Now we can live under the rule of billionaires. Our crowning achievement as a species, we've made it. Billionaires will rule. History has shown that the other way isn't going to happen. Uh, is that how people will remember the Soviet Union? I don't think so. Uh, the Soviet Union will be looked at in history not as the end of communism, but as its first valiant experiment. That the flaws and defects that exist in the Soviet Union, and yes, there were many, were not the cause of a planned socialist economy or public property. They were the They were caused by a torturous history, an environment domestically poor, underdeveloped, illiterate uh, society, ravaged by civil war, invaded by 14 imperialist armies, embargoed and deprived technology, invaded by the Nazis and taking 27 million lives and destroying the economy. That was the conditions under which this socialist experiment uh, was conducted. It will be remembered as the first time the red flag was waved where the working class, the poor, the oppressed, the people who were written off by all previous ruling classes, they said we could remold society. They made a huge historic achievement to the 20th century, and it will be, because we will learn its lessons, the, the, the place, the, the sort of the petri dish where communists and socialists will learn from, not reject. In other words, the Soviet experiment uh, must be embraced and respected as a huge monumental achievement in spite of its defects and flaws. From a young age, we're taught fidelity to the system and to the state. We all grow up saying the Pledge of Allegiance in school, but the words under God we take for granted. Those words were added to the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954 to exclude American communists. Communists, of course, are godless heathens. That piece of history is largely unknown, but the ideology behind it is probably the most known idea in American society. 
This town may appear to be an accurate likeness of a typical American community, but it's a fraud. It isn't free. Socialism has spread the shadow of human regimentation over most of the nations of the earth, and the shadow is encroaching upon our own liberty. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. Now that you become acquainted with the enlightened communist system, in contrast to the outdated capitalistic way of life, you are now prepared for the next step of your indoctrination. You won't have to worry about next year. The state will do your planning from now on. Overthrow it by force and violence. We'll have our way if it means bloodshed and terror. Because the news about communism is getting around. And it's only another word slave. In almost every industrialized country in the world, socialist parties have huge representations, large membership bodies, and hold many elected seats in government. But in America, everyone knows that being called a socialist or communist carries an immediate negative connotation. The term is frequently used to smear people in groups, not necessarily for being one, but merely for associating with one. In the late 1800s, there was an intense battle between organized labor and the country's industrial capitalists. With socialists in the leadership, the labor movement was on the cusp of winning the eight-hour workday, and the corporate owners were willing to do anything to keep working their workers to the bone. Workers on strike all over were shot and killed by police during this fight for what seems like such a basic human right today. In 1887, seven anti-capitalist leaders in the movement were sentenced to death on trumped-up charges, four of them publicly hanged. It was a clear message to anyone involved in radical politics. The battling ideologies of capitalism and socialism in America is more than just opposing arguments. It's been a real battle with real weapons, where one side was exiled, sent to prison, and murdered. Anti-communist paranoia continued to build. Struggles that outraged the rich, like child labor laws and women's right to vote, were labeled red plots. President Woodrow Wilson was helping push for new laws that officially criminalized opinions, not deeds. In 1915, in his State of the Union address, he declared, there are citizens of the United States who have poured the poison of disloyalty in the very arteries of our national life, who have sought to bring the authority and good name of our government into contempt. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. And the mission to crush out anti-capitalist ideas was in full effect as World War I began. A coalition of socialists and anarchists who had been leading the militant labor and anti-war struggle was a primary target. Over 90 IWW leaders were mass arrested and given lengthy prison sentences. Repression in the courts was reinforced by hired gangs and lynch mobs allowed by the state to carry out vigilante actions. In 1917, the oil company controlled newspaper Tulsa World printed on its front page. The first step in whipping Germany is to strangle the IWWs, kill them, just as you would kill any other kind of snake. And they did kill them. And that year alone, big businesses' thugs, like the Pinkerton Gang, lynched many IWW leaders. Frank Little, a popular IWW leader of mine workers in Butte, Montana, was beaten, dragged behind a car, and hanged from a railroad trussel. 
That same year, Wilson legislated the criminalization of dissent by passing the Espionage Act. Included in the U.S. government's sweeping definition of espionage, suggesting that you shouldn't be used as cannon fodder in a war between ruling elites. In 1918, famous American socialist and presidential candidate Eugene Debs gave a speech in Canton, Ohio. He said, Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all battles taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons. They alone declare war, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose, you certainly, above all others, have the right to decide the momentous issue of war or peace. For these words alone, Debs was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to ten years in prison. The charge? Obstructing recruitment. Many others who did nothing but speak against the war met the same fate. During the patriotic hysteria, the Espionage Act was expanded into the most repressive law in U.S. history. The Sedition Act read, Whoever shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts, shall be punished. Over 1,500 people were arrested under this law. Those convicted faced up to 20 years in prison. Everything and everyone was a target. Books and feature films were seized by the government. Every postmaster in the country was under orders to monitor all mail and refused to mail newspapers and magazines deemed unloyal. For those who were open communists, well, they were just arrested. Under the Smith Act, it was deemed illegal for anyone to be a member of the Communist Party. And in a surprise attack, the state arrested everyone who held a leadership position in the party. All of them were sent to prison. Over a hundred were convicted of being communists and given sentences of up to six years, jailed for nothing but their beliefs. During this period, 5,000 communists were forced to flee the country. More than a thousand went to prison. The climate was such that anyone who even leaned to the left was completely persecuted. But just to show how far it would take things in the legal system, the U.S. government went beyond hard prison sentences. In 1951, Communist Party members Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were found guilty of being spies. But their sentences would be much different than their predecessors. The judge convicted them not for espionage, but for the murder of all the American soldiers who had been sent to die in Korea. On June 19, 1953, they were executed. It seems like there had been waves of anti-communism before World War II, and after World War II, it seemed like anti-communism was pretty much locked in. How did the Cold War impact the repression on the left here at home? After World War II, you had 
Soviet Union got stronger. China had its revolution. Vietnam had a revolution. Revolutions were happening all over the world against colonialism. So the U.S. elites, bankers, politicians, and of course the repressive agency said, we're going to stop that in its track in the United States. We're not going to let it flower. Communism after World War II became synonymous with the struggle against the Soviet Union. Communism was treated no longer as an indigenous movement for social progress and social justice and equality, but a fifth column, an extension of an enemy state. And of course, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons pointed at each other. So if you were a communist, if you were sympathetic to the Soviet Union, sympathetic to socialism, then you were a traitor and you were treated as such. And that's what happened. Tens of thousands of people lost their jobs. Hundreds of thousands of people uh, were driven out of industry. People decided then and there, I won't sign a petition. I won't go to a demonstration. I won't have anything to do with the left because if I do, I could ruin my chances for employment or education and it could impact my entire family. That's what actually happened in the United States. The United States um, government has a lot of power. The U.S. media, the corporate-owned media, has represented the view of the United States to the letter. And so the witch hunt that began in 1945, 46, 47, McCarthyism, became what I would say the unofficial religion of the United States. It had, it was an article of faith. You had to swear that you renounced the devil, renounce communism, renounce socialism so that you could work, so that you could have a career, so that you could uh, thrive in any possible way. It became a rule for existence in the United States. And so you had not only censorship, but self-censorship. Millions of people decided, I'm just not going to identify as a socialist or a communist, even if I think those thoughts, mm -hmm. because I can't survive within this system. To hear it from the right-wing media, a new red menace is upon us. My gosh, socialism has never failed so vividly as it has in the modern times, and yet these guys come out there and say, that's what America needs. I don't think so. Venezuela is currently one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Hunger and crime are rampant. Clean water and medicine, scarce. So why on Earth would anybody want to bring those catastrophic policies and conditions to the U.S. The New York Times hailing in a new op-ed, quote, the millennial socialists are coming. After Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's primary victory earlier this month in New York, the media and the political establishment are reckoning with the specter of a particular brand of left-wing politics. Democratic socialism, to me, is the basic belief that in a moral and, and wealthy America, in a moral and modern America, no person should be too poor to live in this country. In March, the Washington Post ran an op-ed by its staff columnist and avowed socialist Elizabeth Brunig called, It's Time to Give Socialism a Try. This week in the Miami Herald, the op-ed headline, They called themselves socialists, but they don't know the meaning of the word. And on ABC's The View, this exchange. This is what I need from her. Name one country that socialism has ever worked. And also every Sweet. every democratic socialist Copenhagen, who is going uh, on TV Denmark, saying that it's good needs Norway, to start paying 90% in taxes. Iceland. On your tax form. No, on your tax form. Socialism, an idea once relegated to the kind of far-left newspapers given out at campus conferences, has become fodder for daytime talk shows a clear offering in the marketplace of ideas. 
though its adherents might prefer to think of it as simply an idea whose time has come. Nathan Robinson is editor-in-chief at Current Affairs magazine and a self-described socialist. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be with you. This is a word watch to define socialism, which is kind of like having a word watch to define meat. There's a lot of different kinds of meat. So it's not just like describing meat. It's like describing a lot of abstract terms like love, democracy, liberalism. Broadly, socialism describes a left economic tendency. There are things that nearly all socialists agree on, a skepticism of the concentration of economic power in a few hands, a belief that working people, laborers need more control over their workplaces, need more ownership over their lives, a broad skepticism of capitalists and landlords. But then what you're going to do about that, there are huge raging arguments among socialists and have been for centuries. It's fair to say, I suppose, that the common thread is taking care of the many, even at some risk of arguable unfairness to the few. Yes, and a belief that fairness itself requires justice to all, and there's an egalitarian instinct to it, you know, the fair distribution uh, of resources. Part of that definition would include status quo, public policy, like Medicare. What parts of the status quo do reflect that kind of socialist worldview? Well, the parts that guarantee people a basic standard of living and are accessible to all. I just read an article about public libraries and why socialists love public libraries. They are places that are free for everybody. They're controlled by the local people who have authority over them. They're not controlled by a company. And there's that sense of everyone is equal in a public library. Although it does, to some, seem fearsome. It's the kind of socialism that is usually prefixed with the word creeping. Well, public libraries embody an egalitarian spirit, and they do sort of challenge the perspective that almost everything other than basic services like police and the military should be left to the market. And public libraries show an example of a well-run state institution. They kind of prove something which is a little dangerous to a certain kind of a free market orthodoxy, which is that they suggest that state-run institutions aren't necessarily a nightmare. So the public library kind of provides a vision of a way that common ownership and common control could work. So I I don't think they're necessarily wrong to view it as creeping. I think it does creep. (laughs) Actually, not the answer I was expecting. Oh, sorry. Um, What I thought you were going to say was, look, yes, but no, because libraries are not collectivism. (laughs) But this gets to the very point. I guess the fact that there is a relationship is precisely the thing that scares so many people, such as during the Red Scare. Although Soviet communism really isn't the thing that is the big talking point nowadays on the right. It seems to be Venezuela. You know, as we look at other countries like Venezuela, et cetera, where socialism is imploding their country, do we really want that here? What happened in Venezuela? They call that democratic socialism, but they don't have toilet paper. Note to socialism fans, go visit Venezuela. (laughs) 
that the fact that a country calls itself socialist it doesn't really tell you anything. North Korea calls itself a democracy. You have to look at how the country actually operates. For those of us who are democratic socialists, who are very strongly anti-authoritarian, who are skeptical of the concentration of unaccountable power, Venezuela doesn't tell you much at all because we oppose every measure that would increase uh, centralized and, and dictatorial power. This isn't a verdict on whether people should have democratic control over their workplaces. They don't have that in Venezuela, just like they didn't have it in the USSR. And that's why there were a lot of libertarian socialists, people like Bertrand Russell and Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, were all horrified by the Soviet Union. Emma Goldman wrote an essay, There is no communism in Russia. Her whole idea was, well, it, it only exists if people are actually equal. And equality was a lie in the Soviet Union. So it doesn't invalidate the idea of equality. What it invalidates is using authoritarian methods to sort of impose the illusion of equality on people by force. A moment ago, we played a clip from Fox and Friends to show their horror at the word socialism. But you don't have to go to the propaganda mouthpiece of the Trump White House to get that reaction. Here's a clip from CBS in which Nancy Pelosi was asked to respond to Republicans who say that Democratic socialists are ascendant in her party. No, they're not. They're, it's ascendant in that district, perhaps. Uh, but I don't accept any characterization of our party presented by the Republicans. The Democrats are terrified of the word, too. Why? Well, I think some of them sincerely believe that from a pragmatic perspective, they have to distance themselves from that word because, you know, especially for older Democrats, they remember the Cold War. They, they think that America has been trained for a century to be horrified by this concept. But I think they don't understand. People in my generation have had to witness an economy that has crushed so many of our peers in debt and in hopelessness. We want a different word and we want something that can help to distinguish the values that we're putting forward from the values that have built the economy that we see treating people so badly. In February of last year, during a CNN town hall house uh, town hall that was happening that was hosted by Jake Tapper, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, she kind of chastised an NYU sophomore, Trevor Hill, who pointed out that maybe what the Democrats needed was a more stark contrast to right-wing economics to attract younger voters as the Tea Party had. And then just a couple of weeks ago, again on CNN, 33-year-old former South Carolina state lawmaker Bakari Sellers, a CNN commentator, said, I don't care if I get in trouble for saying this. I've been saying it since I'm blue in the face. Our Democratic leadership is old and stale. How much do you think there is a generational divide within the Democratic Party when it comes to considering what might be described as a more socialist prescription for the economy? I think it's a really vast generational divide. Um, I think that polling bears it out, um, but you can see it really well in how the kids lined up in the 2016 primaries, um, with Sanders being uh, pretty openly about uh, sort of social democratic uh, programs and a social democratic approach to governance. And then, you know, you had the sort of remainder, the older segments of the party lining up behind more traditional democratic candidate uh, in Clinton. 
And uh, and I think that you know more and more you see that you know even kids younger than millennials um, tend to be leaning a little bit more radical, uh, probably as a result of having grown up in the aftermath of the of the Great Recession. You write that my answer is admittedly more ambitious. It's time to give socialism a try. In your opinion, to what extent is being more socialist still electoral political suicide? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it didn't, it, you know, Sanders did remarkably well being uh, not really contesting the label of socialism. I mean, one of the things about being called a socialist at this point is for the last eight years, um, you know, Republicans called Obama a socialist over nothing, over pretty ordinary traditional democratic policies that were maybe a, a nudge less ambitious than most New Deal programs. So um, the, the, the label has really lost a lot of its fight, I think, at this point. And also we have, you know, countries uh, in the Nordic countries that are doing, you know, pretty well um, with policies that are rightfully described as socialist. Um, so, I mean, I think it's probably still pretty suicidal, but maybe not as suicidal as it once was, more self-harm. So to what degree, then, do you think that the right unintentionally watered down the meaning of socialism? Yeah, I mean, I think they, they certainly had a hand in it. Um, you know, the whole generation of kids has grown up, uh, you know, over essentially a decade watching the right say, uh, well, you know, kind of lightly modifying insurance markets uh, to, to get people on health care. Uh, that's socialism. And, and uh, you know, the right described all kinds of things Obama did as socialism. They accused Michelle Obama of being some kind of socialist for trying to make school lunches healthier. And so I think there is certainly an effect of as to where socialism for the Cold War generation is the worst possible, most totalitarian thing you can imagine. Um, for kids who are growing up now, socialism is what? It's Obama? It's Bernie Sanders? It's Sweden? That doesn't sound so bad. Right. And you quote uh, the late great scholar Mark Fisher writing, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. What would you say to someone, because uh, you were touching on the Soviet Union, uh, what would you say to someone who argues that pursuing socialism is a dead end and it's been it's proven to be a dead end because, look, the Soviets failed and capitalism won? Yeah, well, there are a lot of ways to uh, create a failed state. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh Certainly, it's the case that you can have a failed socialist state and you can have socialist policies that um, conclude in, in travesty. Uh, the same is true of capitalism. Um, I'm not proposing totalitarianism. And I, and I also think that uh, if you look at uh, plenty of other countries, and the right is schizophrenic on this, about half the time the right says that Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Finland, etc., they're not socialist. Uh, they're just capitalists with redistribution policies. And then about the other half of the time, they do say they're socialists. And that's usually when people are proposing we do what they're doing. Um, so they're not really decided on whether or not they're socialists. I think they're pretty socialists. I think you have to look at policies on a spectrum. Uh, but they're also doing pretty well. And they, they have all kinds of good indicators. They rank well in terms of happiness. Internationally, they're happier than Americans. And they all have good health indicators, education indicators. So, I mean, I think there are ways to do socialism that appear to be working. To what degree do you think American capitalism is failing because Soviet communism failed? That is, capitalism is failing because it is now seen as supreme and anything even remotely socialist within the U.S. social safety net and reining in big business with regulations is undone. Yeah, I mean, the, the, certainly the, the politics of the Cold War have had lasting consequences in how America handles uh, its own economic system, its own political economy. I think that capitalism has its own problems. 
uh, that are just inherent to it and that have been around for as long as capitalism has been around and have been noted for just as long. Um, I think that the American unwillingness to even try to kind of temper some of the effects of capitalism for its own good, to stabilize it and secure it, um, maybe have made American capitalism more volatile um, than, than capitalism in countries where they're more willing to go in with a stronger regulation to kind of stabilize it. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I can see how the, uh, the impact of the Cold War has made American capitalism um, even more difficult to sustain. People don't agree on this subject. They don't agree on how to define capitalism. They don't agree on how to define socialism. And of course, then they cannot agree on what the difference is between the two of them, since they don't agree on what it is. So maybe the best way to handle this is to tell you briefly what has been in the past the dominant understanding, because that will then allow me to tell you how and why it's changing now. And that's simply the reality people have to get used to if they're going to enter into this debate. Okay, so traditionally, emerging out of the 19th century and dominant for the 20th century, here was the basic idea. Capitalism, it was said, is a system in which the means of production, factories, buildings, money, cash, all of that was privately owned by individuals, either as individual persons or in groups, whereas socialism was publicly owned. That is, the society as a whole would collectively own the means of production, and they would be managed by the representative of the whole people, namely the government or the state. So capitalism is private ownership of means of production. Socialism is collective or state ownership. And the second basic difference was that in a capitalist system, goods and services go from the producer, those who make them, to the consumer, those who use them, by means of a market exchange. That is, the producer sells what has been produced to the consumer who buys it. To be very literal, it means that the produced object, whether it's a good or a service, has to go through an exchange process before it reaches the consumer. By contrast, socialism was defined as an arrangement in which the passage from production to consumption was done by a collectively organized plan. Planning was socialism. Market exchange was capitalism. So to make it very simple, capitalism is private ownership and markets, and socialism is collective or state ownership and government planning that could be organized in a variety of ways. That's why, for example, in the Soviet Revolution or in the Chinese Revolution, when the change was organized, private property was withdrawn from private owners and given over to the state in the name of the whole people. 
and markets were either suppressed or made secondary to a general plan which it was the government's responsibility to organize. Capitalism was overcome by socialism, the argument went, when the state took over private ownership and state planning took dominance over markets if they were left at all to play a role. The problem with this definition was always the same. Namely, nothing was changed in the immediate production relationship. In other words, the relationship between who gives you the order of what to do in the workplace, where to sit, what machine to use, in what way, for what period of time, in what relationship to others working, all of the questions of the organization of the workplace were not touched in this discussion. It was as if it didn't matter. It was as if you had made the revolution simply by changing the ownership and the distribution system, not by the relationships. What has happened now is, for a number of reasons, that old definition of the difference has been rejected. Not by everybody, this is an ongoing process. But the new direction, which I am part of and which I believe is becoming dominant, is critical of the old definition, basically around the idea that to change the ownership and to change the system of distribution simply is not enough. That when you do that, but you leave in place the organization of the actual work process and the work relationships and the work structure, you are leaving in place a crucial part of capitalism. So now let me explain this argument. In this view, what distinguishes capitalism from other systems isn't private ownership and isn't market distributions. This perspective reminds us that in the old feudal system and in the prior slavery systems, you also had markets. You also had uh, private ownership of slaves, private ownership at various times of land in feudalism and so on. So that the proper way, the new way, the more emerging way is to say that the distinction between capitalism and other systems should be focused on the relationships in work, in the process of producing the goods and services without which we cannot live. So that, for example, slavery, the relationship is one group of people owns another group of people. In feudalism, one group of people, the lords, have complete dominion, domination, over another group of people called serfs. In capitalism, you don't have the slavery relationship and you don't have the feudal relationship. You have the relationship of employer to employee. One group of people gives the opportunity to work and the other group of people depends on having the opportunity of work given to them in an exchange of wages for labor. Okay, with this framework, what is then the distinction between capitalism and socialism? And then the answer becomes very clear and precise. Socialism is when you overcome 
you end the relationship of employer to employee. No longer do you divide some people in the production process who are the board of directors, the corporate leaders, the ones who decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits, and other people whose job it is to come five or six days a week, do what they are told, and then go home. That's over. Socialism, in this perspective, is when the workers together as a society or a community, socialism, communism, that's when workers democratically together, one worker, one vote, decide all the basic decisions of the production world. Then you have socialism. And until then, you don't have socialism, which means you have to come up with another phrase to capture the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. And for lack of time, the answer is these are state forms of capitalism. Why? Because the state owns and the state plans. But we call it capitalism because the state has not, or at least not yet, removed the employer-employee relationship. Socialism is not just somebody has a good idea. Oh, let's have, let's have a socialist system. Any more than capitalism was just a good idea. Oh, feudalism. Yeah, kings and aristocracy and lords. You know what? I got an idea for a whole new system. Let's have capitalism. That's, it doesn't begin as an idea. It begins as an objective process of how human society develops and how human economy, uh, the, the economies of human society develop. And, you know, we learn how to make tools, and now we don't want to have, you know, our tribal society that was built on just gathering berries and, you know, running around chasing animals. All of a sudden, we had agriculture and, and yeah, animal husbandry. Yeah. And uh, our society changes. And with that, the ideas change. So we start to become conscious of what's possible, because of objective developments, it's not all just springing from people's heads. So to apply that idea to Venezuela, I mean, Hugo Chavez comes to power because neoliberalism and one of the first big mass protests against this hyper capitalist policies was in Venezuela uh, prior to uh, Chavez uh, getting elected and prior to his involvement in an attempted coup. But these policies were, were destroying Venezuela. And people, you know, they rose up against these policies. The hypercapitalism wasn't working. And the, the uh, uh, exploitation of the oil resources was, you know, tiny elite was benefiting from it. And people were conscious of this. So sure, socializing the benefits of, of that oil, it was obvious as a way out of the situation. Uh, you have a movement and you have leaders that emerge from the movement. And it is what it is, meaning, you know, it, it wasn't they didn't have some great worked out plan. It wasn't, you know, a party with a head, you know, economists and all kinds of people to figure out what to do once you get elected. You know, stuff happens. They, they, they may, it may have been as surprised as anyone that they actually wound up running the country. Sure. 
And with all its defects and all its weaknesses and all its warts, uh, the Venezuelan or Bolivarian revolution, it accomplished a lot. And it wasn't just about uh, spreading more of the oil money around. Uh, there was, and I, I guess still is, I, I, don't ha- I haven't been for a while and I don't have the same kind of handle on it, but the kind of community uh, decision-making, uh, community uh, governance at the local levels, uh, there, was a, there were real experiments and development, developing different forms of democracy, which has to be part of uh, the socialistic conversation. Because like you have a big state-owned sector in China, right. but you don't have any democracy to speak of, and you have a class of billionaires that have emerged that run the Communist Party. Um, so I don't know what kind of socialism it is. It's not socialism just because you have state ownership. Right. And, and on the other hand, there's a certain amount of planning going on in China. People's standard of living is going up. Uh, these are, they're complicated processes, and we need to exa- analyze them as such. But I'll go back to where I was in the beginning. The reason we need to have this conversation of what does a modern socialist system look like and how will it operate and what are the features of it? You know, we talk about you know, even the United States is a mixed economy. There's socialistic features. We got a publicly owned post office. Sure. We got publicly Public owned libraries. libraries and schools and such. Why? Because it made so much sense. Mm-hmm. But the same sense that it made to do that has made sense to have socialized healthcare in virtually every advanced capitalist country. It makes sense here. But once that makes sense, so does banking. Like, why would you have let big banks blackmail a whole society and a whole economy so that they can go speculate? Sure. I guess I just want to end on where I started. It's not just some intellectual conversation. Is socialism good or bad? Yeah, there's been, as, as frankly, any major transformation of human society, uh, there's going to be tremendous uh, fault and weaknesses and, and you know, stupidities, especially, you know, if you talk about the Soviet Union building, trying to build socialism in what it was a very backward country. And that was a matter of great debate at the time. But we need to look at this. We need to talk about it because capitalism has is failed it's failed most of the population of this world for the you know at least the last hundred years but most importantly it has no solutions to the actual threat to us as human society like capitalism's completely uh, out of steam with the most urgent threats facing us so this it's not just some idea to let uh, i mean cafe conversation this is about our existence or not. And, and unless somebody has some other idea, uh, and I don't think there is, when you look at what there is, you need to take a, you've got to break up the concentration of ownership because with concentration of ownership goes concentrated political power. Everybody understands that. But there's no way to wait against that without public ownership. Like, how else do you? break up concentrated ownership. It's not because you're going to give everybody a share of a company. That's sure. not going to happen. The only counterbalance, counterweight to concentrated private ownership is public ownership. On the other hand, public ownership in a small number of hands, like a single party state or some of the models of the 20th century, that's as dangerous because concentrated power, even if it's in the name of socialism, 
will also be a disaster, will be a, you know, become a dictatorship because concentrated ownership equals concentrated political power. So we got to look at how does this public ownership look, ownership look in a way that's very diversified. You know, whether it's ownership at a city level, at a state level, at the federal level when necessary, whether it's workers' co-ops, whether it's regional uh, conglomerations. But, but I've said this before, we're in an era now because of artificial intelligence where you could coordinate an economy like that. You could have a Green New Deal, which is mostly built out of public ownership in many ways so that it doesn't get too concentrated. And still coordinate that. Um, I don't think it was ever possible in human history to have the kind of socialism that could also be democratic. Um, and as I said before, I, I don't think there's any choice to this. Because the alternative is we're not going to have civilization at all. So I think a lot of people are aware of socialism now, especially since we have a self-proclaimed democratic socialist running for president, but they don't actually understand what it means. I think they're taking little bits and pieces, free health care, free education. Talk about the means of production and how a socialist economy would actually be structured. They came up with the following idea, that the problem of capitalism is two fundamental things. One, that private individuals own the means of production. They own the land, they own the factories, they own the stores, the machinery. And that the people, the owners, are really a very small part of the population. 1%, 2%, 5%, maybe even 10%, although rarely did it get that high. But that means the vast majority of people are never part of the owners. And the basic socialist idea was, if you allow a small number of people to control the means of producing all the goods and services we all need to survive, they're going to use that control to make the system work for them. And they're not going to worry about the rest of us. In other words, it's a recipe for a society that produces wealth for the top 5 to 10% but not for everybody else. That gives power, political and other power, to those at the top and not to everybody else. So the socialist idea was, this is fundamentally unjust, fundamentally undemocratic, this is what's wrong with capitalism, and how do you solve it? You make collective ownership, not private. The society as a whole should own the means of production, the factories, the offices, the stores, so that they are good for everybody, so that what they produce is distributed roughly equally, so that the influence and the decisions are made. So social, that's why it's called socialism, it's the society that should own. It focuses on the workplace. Its idea is the way you make sure that the government never again becomes an institution over the people, but rather simply an instrument of the people is by making sure that at the base of society, where people live and work, the wealth, the productive capability is in their hands. If you want the slogan of 21st century socialism, it's this, democratize the enterprise. End this process where there's a handful of people who make the decision. In most American corporations, and corporations do the bulk of the business in modern capitalism, a tiny group of what are called major shareholders, 
the people who have big blocks of shares, they select who the board of directors is. 1% of Americans own three quarters of the shares. It's highly concentrated. A tiny number of people, the 1%, own the bulk of the shares. How do you run a corporation? At the top is something called a board of directors, usually 15 to 20 people. How do you get on the board of directors? There's an election every year to get on that board. And the way the election works is if you own a share of stock in the company, you get one vote. If you have 10 shares, you get 10 votes. If you own a million shares, you get a million votes. If you have no shares, that's how many votes you get. So there's no pretense of democracy. So if a handful of people own the bulk of the shares, they control everything. They select the 15 or 20 people on the board of directors. The board of directors decides what the company produces, how the company does it, where the company is located, and what's done with the profits. Everybody helps produce the profits. The employees have to live with the decision, but have no influence on it. It is the opposite of democracy. And if you don't have democracy at the workplace, you can't ever have it real in politics either, because those at the top will buy the political system, something which we see in the United States so starkly every day that everyone knows. If workers took over a factory, had a worker co-op instead of a top-down, and the workers together decided what to do with the profits, you think they'd give a few executives $25 million so they have more money than they know what to do with, while everybody else has to borrow money to send their kids to college? It'll never happen. You think a collection of workers, say 400 in a factory, considering that you could make more money if you moved the production to China, are they going to vote to get rid of their own jobs? It's not going to happen. They're not going to destroy their community by having an empty factory. They're not going to deprive their local government of the tax revenues to run the schools and the hospitals. And they're not going to deprive themselves of jobs. So what we've had in the last 40 years, all those jobs leaving, would never have left if it was the collective decision of the workers where this production is going to take place. The Soviet Union collapsed 23 years ago. The pretext for fighting communism as part of an international fight against an enemy state, that's gone. That's vanished. Capitalism can no longer compare itself to the Soviet Union. It can only compare itself to itself. And we see within the capitalist society a growing hardship, growing income inequality, growing po poverty. One out of every two Americans lives in or near poverty. And so as a consequence of this economic division and the inability to justify the old anti-communism, there's new space opening up for socialism. And you see the Occupy movement. People said, we are the 99%. That was kind of the harbinger of the beginning of a new socialist uh, context. The Sanders campaign, even though I don't agree with Bernie Sanders on many issues, the fact that tens of thousands of people come to someone who says he's a self-proclaimed socialist and says there should be an end to in income inequality, that there should be greater equality, the fact that he's on the front cover of Time magazine and it says socialize this, comma, America, and that's not a bad thing, that means we're seeing a new day. The fog of anti-communism, the bigotry, the prejudice, that's starting to lift. And the Sanders campaign's success, surprising success, or the Occupy movement's sudden, spontaneous growth nationwide, these are harbingers of what's coming. This war on ideas and alternatives 
is still being relentlessly pursued every day. Even 50 years after the Cold War, the Empire continues to wage war on every remaining country trying to build up socialism, refusing to let even one nation develop alternatives without the constant threat of subversion and overthrow. Because the last thing the system wants is an example that undermines its supreme truth. The inability to question this dogma is deeply ingrained. After all, capitalism is the bedrock of America. But like every other myth that acts as the glue to our society, this too needs to be challenged. The planet is in deep crisis, where war and inequality define our world. Unfettered capitalism and endless consumption cannot and will not last. The elite at the helm won't ever give up their security for the good of humanity. And the old guard will use every weapon in its arsenal to maintain domination. The Empire's long war against any alternative that challenges this crushing reality is unconscionable. We have the right to criticize the system itself without being labeled shut down or worse. We can't let the rulers of this system dictate the boundaries of our discussion. Because in this era, where alternatives are desperately needed, we have to unite to marginalize their ideas, not let them marginalize ours. We've just heard clips today, starting with Backstory, discussing the U.S. response to the Bolshevik Revolution. The Empire Files highlighted many of the reasons why Russia's implementation of socialism failed. Separately, the Empire Files next described America's war on the idea of socialism. On the media, discussed the modern mainstream debate over the resurgence of socialism. This is Hell spoke with Elizabeth Brunig, author of the recent article Ready for Socialism, about the generational divide on socialism and how the right, by calling everything socialism, has basically defanged the threat. Activism Munich spoke with Professor Richard Wolff about the definition of capitalism and the debate over what should be the definition of socialism. Paul Jay on The Real News Network described the failures of capitalism as the main driving factor for the current interest in socialism. The Empire Files also spoke with Professor Richard Wolff, who, in this clip, described a modern concept of how a socialist system could work. And finally, we just heard in another clip from The Empire Files a description of how and why the times are right for people to be waking up to socialism as a viable solution to many of the problems with capitalism. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips with some further discussion on the rise of democratic socialists in America and a detailed description of how capitalism through globalization has finally hit its natural breaking point. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, since we don't have any voicemails today, I'm going to take the opportunity to play a couple additional clips, these uh, not explaining the interest in the rise of socialism, but a, a couple of the sillier responses to it, one from Fox News and one from a conservative publication, and we'll discuss the, uh, the stark um, similarities between the two. What the the right has real trouble with is dealing when with um 
anyone on the left who simply states unequivocally they want the government to provide for people some basic requirements for living a fulfilling life. They don't know how to deal with it, and it's really fun to watch. Here is uh, Fox and Friends trying to deal with this surge of socialism in the Democratic Party. New deal for our future. Right. Thirty one billion dollars is Medicare for all. And not many people high trillion. five when they have Medicare. Yeah. Not many P- trillion. Excuse me. I keep forgetting. Um, but not many people Plus, high five when you first get Medicare. First of all, there's a huge difference between a thirty one billion and thirty one trillion dollars. But as you heard on this program last week. That cost reflects a projection by a libertarian think tank as to how much Medicare for all will cost. If it's implemented between the years of 2022 and 2032. Left out of this segment, apparently, is that that represents a two trillion dollar savings. Relative to what we as a nation expend on health care or would over those 10 years by that own report said that they buried it a little bit. So it would represent a two trillion dollar savings. Uh, from the pockets of the American people to have Medicare for all, not to mention that you, God knows how much sort of productivity, if that's what you're worried about, or just leisure time or just mental duress would be spared uh, by not having to go through the Byzantine process of dealing with private insurance. But let's continue. Yeah, not many trillion. Excuse me, I keep forgetting. Um, but not many people high five when you get Medicare. I mean, it's not the best. Well, one of the Pause reasons. To- Actually, that's not true either. Now, it's maybe the case that people don't literally high five. Although I would imagine some would. I feel like I would. You get a pretty exciting uh, letter in the mail regarding that sort of thing. People, the idea that there are people out there who just can't wait until they're on Medicare is absolutely the case. You do not have to search very far for that. Go Google Medicare approval rates right now. The only thing that might be higher than Medicare approval rates is social security approval rates. There is no other, nothing is as a popular, but. Five, when you get Medicare, I mean, it's not the best. Well, one of the reasons so many people on the Democratic Party are talking about socialism now is because uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had that stunning win. And who did who had energized everybody in the last election? It was Bernie Sanders. Rick Harrison, who you've seen on this program, he's the star of Pawn Stars on cable. He says the fact that we're talking about socialism right now in America is mind boggling. Pause it for one second. What is genuinely mind-boggling is that they've set up this whole thing about socialism, and they're like, we should check in with the star of Pawn Stars. (laughs) Incidentally, pawn shops, if you're not aware of them, are places where broke people go to sell uh, important things in their lives as a way of getting short-term funding for things like paying for an operation or (laughs) for dental work. Or uh, because they they want to, I don't know, they're somebody's, I mean, it's probably, I wonder like what percentage of stuff is sold at pawn shops to pay for medical bills. Or things we should just be providing. Exactly. Anyway. So, but wh- who better, 
who better to go to to talk about socialism than someone who is at the bottom feeding le- who uh, who profits off of the victims of capitalism? Totally unbiased commentator. Here we go. Look on some of these news channels. These people supposedly have a college education and they're touting socialism, which to me is just sort of mind boggling. I mean, obviously you didn't. You cheated a lot. <laughs> and it, it, but socialism is, it, it sounds so great, though. That's why people, you know, embrace it. it you know, the government's going to pay for everything. It sounds great, but, you know, economically, it can't happen. See, the American dream, and he talked about watches. He says, you know, the whole world is watches. One second. But- I, just you, I just want you to know that the critique of socialism is that it can't happen. It sounds great. It sounds great. But it can't happen because why? Well, let's go back to the Fox and Friends guys who are going to explicate the explication. American dream. And he talked about watches. He says, you know, the whole world invented watches, but it was America with this with this business climate that was able to take the watch mass produce it to the fact that we became the best watchmakers ever. That was in the 18 uh, 1850s. And then he says, look at me. He didn't have a high school education. He didn't go to college. He applied for a business license in a week and he got it and he made it on his own. He goes, you're not going to have that if you have socialism. Right. But if you don't have anything and somebody's offering free college, free health care, free everything, that is a very tantalizing prospect. Mm. But if you didn't learn in school how when you don't have anything, the way to require it is not to get it by being given, by having it handed to you, but by earning it. Stop this. we got to play this again. Like, first off, this is a conversation that if I heard, if I came home and my uh, near 13-year-old daughter was having this conversation with her friends, I'd be like, guys, seriously, you're better than this. Let's just, like, sound, like come on. You guys are going into eighth grade. You, you can be a little bit more sophisticated in talking about this. But I love how Kill Mead comes in and, like, no, Deucey's making it sound too good. No, you need to learn in school that if someone's giving you something, it's not good because you're getting it because of watches in the 1850s. So this clip is good, I I think, because they cover both major arguments that I'm hearing coming out of conservative critics of socialism and, and just admitting that we're pretty much talking about vaguely socialistically styled programs like universal health care or education. You know, we're not talking about employee ownership of, of enterprise at the moment. So uh, just talking about these programs, admittedly, the, the first argument is usually about cost. They do bring up cost. They throw out big, and uh, you know, scary sounding numbers, as we heard in this clip, and then obviously fail to mention that the cost of status quo programs as they currently run would be even bigger, even more scary numbers. So the whole cost argument falls flat. And what I'm finding fascinating is that their fallback argument seems to be nothing more complicated than, yeah, you know, it sure sounds good, but we can't. End of argument. Like, that's all they've got. Yeah, but, you know, can't do that. And the second clip is, bizarrely similar uh, with a, you know, a very similar conclusion. A woman who is not a reporter, as far as I can tell, just an average American. And now I imagine it will come out that she's, you know, I don't know, uh, some paid operative for some right wing um, outfit. It really doesn't matter. Um, What's 
Oh, she does. Is she really? A, is she a she's writer? A, she's associate editor. For oh, Daily she is. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know because it didn't sort of like. Okay, yeah, our associate editor because it was. Uh, I'm a conservative, and I went to an Alexandria Ocasio Cortez rally. Uh, I would assume if you're writing the Daily Caller, you're a conservative, but I guess this was more of like a clickbait type of thing. Um, she writes that I went to a rally uh, against the seven-term incumbent William Lacey Clay. Over the years, I have attended my share of political events, Tea Party protests, a Rick Perry speech on tax cuts. (laughs) (laughs) Electrifying content. A Ted Cruz rally and even a speech given by President Donald Trump earlier this year. But nothing prepared me for the stark difference in tone. Ocasio-Cortez spoke, followed by Bush. That's the candidate. And I saw something. Truly terrifying. I saw just how easy it would be, were I less involved and less certain of our nation's founding and its history, to fall for the populist lines they were shouting from that stage. I saw how easy it would be, as a parent, to accept the idea that my children deserve health care and education. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not, very very easy to manipulate people with stuff like well, that. Well, I just I, I I want this to just I want people to I want this to marinate in your brain that a parent just said I saw how easy it would be as a parent to accept the idea that my children deserve health care and education. Jesus, I saw how easy it would be as someone who struggled to make men ends meet to accept the idea that a, quote, living wage was a human right. Sounds persuasive, doesn't it? Above all, I saw how easy it would be to accept the notion that it was the government's job to make sure that those things were provided. I watched as both Ocasio-Cortez and Bush deftly chopped America up into demographics, (laughs) pointed out how those demographics had been victimized under the current system, And then promised to be the voice for those demographics. The movement, Ocasio-Cortez shouted, knows no zip code. It knows no state. It knows no race. It knows no gender. It knows no documented status. In other words, they cut it up into demographics, but then said, the movement's not about demographics. Bush, after saying your piece, noted she was careful to allow speakers from all across all demographics. Why demographics? What the? <laughs> to make it clear, she was not running mean. to represent just one particular group, but all. My demographics get it. A lot of demographics. I can't quite get my my arms around whether she's saying that they contradicted themselves or that because that last sentence says, even though we've allowed speakers. To talk about things from different demographics here, we represent everyone. How horrific. Now, as opposed to, let's say, that Ted Cruz rally, where, like, we only have one broad demographic, normal white people, and that's it. We have one demographic, and other demographics are going to need to quiet I left the rally with a photo, in part to remind myself of that time I crashed a rally headlined by a socialist but also in part to remind myself that there, but for the grace of God, go I.
And that's where that article writer decided to end the story. And so to be clear, Sam did not read the entire article in that clip I just played, but I went and read the entire article and there are no additional details backing up her argument or her claim or anything. So her whole point was, that sounds really good, but again, well, you know, we just can't. I, you know, if I didn't know better, I would say that sounded like a really good set of policies, but I do know better the end. It's such a strange position to take and and to have, I mean, maybe they think they have something to back it up, but, but really, um, all I can think is like, how badly would these people fail that, that, uh, test, the, um, uh, describe your opponent's position test that we've been talking about recently. Uh, you know, in addition to these kinds of, well, sounds good, but we can't. The only other thing you hear is Venezuela. So like their argument, would be, hey, um, conservative, describe what socialist policies people like Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders or Professor Richard Wolff, like what policies would they like? Um, I don't know, but whatever Venezuela did, that is exactly what they're proposing. And we'd have the, the same outcomes, I presume. Like that's how they would describe their opponent's position. It's absolutely comically sad and pathetic is my only conclusion. So I just want to play those for you and, and demonstrate that there is a, a fierce and rigorous debate going on. I, I didn't just want to play the pro-socialism side, but uh, get the anti as well. So that is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the left.com. this the best of the left podcast that I'm clipping right now for no reason so this guy is going to go on to say that the communist the Soviet experiment is something to be celebrated and to be learned from because they can do better next time so if you ever have any questions about delusionism um, <clears throat> here we go so next time when they're coming after you to take away your free speech. Just remember that it's for the good of the collective.
We don't want to try to pretend the Soviet Union was heaven on earth. It was a poor country. And we also ask the question, at what cost? When you go from a, a country that's 75% peasant in 1917 and become an urban industrial country within 20 years, a process that took 150 years in Germany, in France, in Britain, in the United States, and you compress that into 20 years, when you have that kind of social reorganization of society, there's going to be a lot of social tension, uh, a lot of pressures on families and on individuals. And so it was, in some ways, as a consequence of its dynamism, also a fairly brutal process. You know, when Karl Marx and Frederick Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, they did not think the, re the revolution, the socialist revolution, would happen in poor, underdeveloped countries. Nor did Lenin. Lenin always thought it would happen in Germany or France. He never expected the Russian Revolution to become the vanguard of the worldwide socialist revolution. Uh, Lenin main, and the Bolsheviks were mainly fighting to end the monarchy in 1905 or 1910 or 1915. It was a consequence of World War I, as Lenin explained, the revolution happened not where the social conditions for socialism were really ripe, but where imperialism was weak. In other words, he said this really wasn't, we weren't ready for socialism. He said, but we were the weakest link in the imperialist chain. It broke there. The revolution broke it because of the war. And so Russia had its revolution. When Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin, all of the leaders uh, looked out and saw the world in 1917 after they made the revolution, they said, well, we can win, but only if Germany has a socialist revolution so that we come to our aid. And Lenin said, as soon as the advanced capitalist countries have their revolution, we won't be the vanguard. We'll be like looking to them. We'll be looking to them for assistance culturally, economically. But the other revolutions didn't come. Well, there was a revolution in Germany and in Hungary. Uh, it all happened in 1918, but the capitalists overcame it. They didn't have a Bolshevik type party capable of taking advantage of the revolution and seizing and holding power. So the Soviet Union became isolated, so isolated, the most sanctioned, embargoed, blockaded country in the world. We know about the blockade in Cuba. Well, the Soviet Union was completely blockaded. So this poor, illiterate country that had a war and then a civil war and famine had come back by 1920, uh, nobody would trade with it. The worldwide capitalist power said, we're going to destroy it. We're going to snuff it out. We're going to strangle it. And as a consequence, the Soviet Union had to develop on a basis of complete self-reliance on its own indigenous industry rather than having the benefits of worldwide trade. Mm -hmm. After the fall of the Soviet Union, it was declared the end of history, right? I mean, socialism was tried and failed. Capitalism would rule to the end of time. As a socialist, what's your response? Well, it's a very important question because the hubris and arrogance of the apologists of imperialism and capitalism was so at such a high point in 1991 and 92 where they thought, well, or and told the world, well, you see, socialism was tried. They conflated socialism with a government, the Soviet Union. It was tried in the Soviet Union, and that government failed. That means socialism failed. And thus, history has stopped because we went from early primitive society, as they would call it, to feudal society, to capitalist society. But this is it. Now we can live under the rule of billionaires. Our crowning achievement as a species, we've made it. Billionaires will rule. History has shown that the other way isn't going to happen. Uh, is that how people will remember the Soviet Union? I don't think so. Uh, the Soviet Union will be looked at in history not as the end of communism, but as its first valiant experiment. 
that the flaws and defects that exist in the Soviet Union, and yes, there were many, were not the cause of a planned socialist economy or public property. They were, the, they were caused by a torturous history, an environment domestically poor, underdeveloped, illiterate uh, society, ravaged by civil war, invaded by 14 imperialist armies, embargoed and deprived technology, invaded by the Nazis and taking 27 million lives and destroying the economy. That was the conditions under which this socialist experiment uh, was conducted. It will be remembered as the first time the red flag was waved where the working class, the poor, the oppressed, the people who were written off by all previous ruling classes, they said we could remold society. They made a huge historic achievement to the 20th century, and it will be, because we will learn its lessons, the, the, the place, the, the sort of, the petri dish where communists and socialists will learn from, not reject. In other words, the Soviet experiment uh, must be embraced and respected as a huge monumental achievement in spite of its defects and flaws. Now, this next episode, this next clip, is very emotional, and it talks about some horrible things that happened to workers in America, and how corporations were allowed to do horrible things and get away with them, sanctioned by the government. And Woodrow Wilson is definitely um, a figure we're going to be talking about when I can get some more material on him and the entire Princeton, Hopewell, Nazi connection that I've been hearing about. The America First movement, Charles Lindbergh and the plan to overthrow the government by force. I've only heard rumors about this and we're going to be doing, doing that on this show eventually when I get enough material. Um, But um, definitely some dark stuff going on there. Now, I just want to ask you, okay, so this is fuel. This is fuel for the fire. This is fuel for the memes. We have definitely some bad things happening here. But what is the solution to them? Right? What is the solution that's being proposed? And um, obviously we can dig up a ton of bad things that are happening here um, and make ourselves very, very upset. But then where is that upset going to be used, right? Because people don't get upset. They're not telling you this stuff to get you upset for no reason. They're going to sell you on something next. Direct that anger and direct that, you know, frustration. So that's what I want to bring attention to. Now, if we were to replace the word capitalist scumbag with genetic overlords, meaning our genes are actually sending us off to war to die as their slaves, and our bodies are just capsules to be expended by the genes in their eternal struggle for hegemony, right? Would that reframe the dialogue a little bit? Would that give you a different perspective? 
I mean, are we struggling against our genes, our aggressive nature, our dominating uh, nature? Is that what we're struggling against? Is that what's controlling our behavior? <clears throat> so, And I think that um, there's definitely been a more of a truce, more of a um, balance of power to create a peace between uh, the dialectics as uh, we learn in um, capitalism, uh, in the study of Marxism and Hegel, the dialectic, the fight between the haves and the haves nots that has been being waged um, and that struggle going back and forth over time so definitely the haves were abusing their powers and the have nots had to strike back um, but can we take a more uh, a different perspective on this whole thing and not get caught up in one side or the other and not get caught up in in the politics so definitely some uh, something to think about in this next clip so strap yourself in in the late 1800s there was an intense battle between organized labor and the country's industrial capitalists with socialists in the leadership, the labor movement was on the cusp of winning the eight-hour workday, and the corporate owners were willing to do anything to keep working their workers to the bone. Workers on strike all over were shot and killed by police during this fight for what seems like such a basic human right today. In 1887, seven anti-capitalist leaders in the movement were sentenced to death on trumped-up charges, four of them publicly hanged. It was a clear message to anyone involved in radical politics. The battling ideologies of capitalism and socialism in America is more than just opposing arguments. It's been a real battle with real weapons, where one side was exiled, sent to prison, and murdered. Anti-communist paranoia continued to build. Struggles that outraged the rich, like child labor laws and women's right to vote, were labeled red plots. President Woodrow Wilson was helping push for new laws that officially criminalized opinions, not deeds. In 1915, in his State of the Union address, he declared, There are citizens of the United States who have poured the poison of disloyalty in the very arteries of our national life, who have sought to bring the authority and good name of our government into contempt. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. And the mission to crush out anti-capitalist ideas was in full effect as World War I began. A coalition of socialists and anarchists who had been leading the militant labor and anti-war struggle was a primary target. Over 90 IWW leaders were mass arrested and given lengthy prison sentences. Repression in the courts was reinforced by hired gangs and lynch mobs allowed by the state to carry out vigilante actions. In 1917, the oil company-controlled newspaper Tulsa World printed on its front page, The first step in whipping Germany is to strangle the IWWs, 
kill them, just as you would kill any other kind of snake. And they did kill them. And that year alone, big businesses' thugs like the Pinkerton Gang lynched many IWW leaders. Frank Little, a popular IWW leader of mine workers in Butte, Montana, was beaten, dragged behind a car, and hanged from a railroad trussle. That same year, Wilson legislated the criminalization of dissent by passing the Espionage Act. Included in the U.S. government's sweeping definition of espionage, suggesting that you shouldn't be used as cannon fodder in a war between ruling elites. In 1918, famous American socialist and presidential candidate Eugene Debs gave a speech in Canton, Ohio. He said, Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all battles. Taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons. They alone declare war, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your- So wow, yeah, this next clip is crazy. Um, <clears throat> she talks about the Sedition Act and um, the uh, how people are jailed, um, how Post is being tampered with, that America is basically uh, turning into a uh, what seems to be a fascist state, and uh, that doesn't surprise me under Wilson and others. So. A lot of the freedoms that we talk about today were already being removed back then. And someone was executed for their, blamed for the deaths of American soldiers. Um, yeah, these things are gonna definitely need to get researched into deeper. And they definitely are moving emotionally. Um, so yes, very valid criticism of America. This is fuel for the fire, but really, where's the hook, right? Where is this going to lead? And, um, we definitely see, uh, we definitely see, um, you know, were these people being forced? So, yes, people were striking for um, for an eight-hour week, right? And I think that's great. And uh, you know, ending child labor, women's right to vote, and these are all amazing things. But um, my question would be, if someone's going to shoot you or beat you up, for striking, wouldn't it make sense to just maybe abandon your post, so to say? Like, do you really need to strike? Um, or wouldn't it be better to quit? I mean, if everyone would quit, right, then they wouldn't have people to work in their factories. 
you know, I think uh, voting with your feet is better than um, getting shot in, uh, in many cases. Now you could say, well, they don't have the ability to move and where they're going to go. But I can remind you that in Kansas, um, it's mostly empty. And, uh, you know, farming um, is still a way of life. <clears throat> and, you know, there are options. And people all over the world live primitive lifestyles. Um, you know, sustenance farming. And that's still better than being shot. So, I mean... I just wonder if there are different ways in retrospect, instead of being lined up as a soldier in a strike and being told what to do by a union boss um, and being solidarity, maybe it's better to be an individualist. Um, but maybe that wouldn't have gotten the change. Yeah, these are definitely things to think about. Uh, it's very interesting. In Canton, Ohio, he said, Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all battles. Taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons. They alone declare war, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You, who have your lives to lose, you certainly, above all others, have the right to decide the momentous issue of war or peace. For these words alone, Debs was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to ten years in prison. The charge? Obstructing recruitment. Many others who did nothing but speak against the war met the same fate. During the patriotic hysteria, the Espionage Act was expanded into the most repressive law in U.S. history. The Sedition Act read, Whoever shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts, shall be punished. Over 1,500 people were arrested under this law. Those convicted faced up to 20 years in prison. Everything and everyone was a target. Books and feature films were seized by the government. Every postmaster in the country was under orders to monitor all mail and refused to mail newspapers and magazines deemed unloyal. For those who were open communists, well, they were just arrested. Under the Smith Act, it was deemed illegal for anyone to be a member of the Communist Party. And in a surprise attack, the state arrested everyone who held a leadership position in the party. All of them were sent to prison. 
Over a hundred were convicted of being communists and given sentences of up to six years, jailed for nothing but their beliefs. During this period, 5,000 communists were forced to flee the country. More than a thousand went to prison. The climate was such that anyone who even leaned to the left was completely persecuted. But just to show how far it would take things in the legal system, the U.S. government went beyond hard prison sentences. In 1951, Communist Party members Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were found guilty of being spies. But their sentences would be much different than their predecessors. The judge convicted them not for espionage, but for the murder of all the American soldiers who had been sent to die in Korea. On June 19, 1953, they were executed. It seems like there had been waves of anti-communism before World War II, and after World War II, it seemed like anti-communism was pretty much locked in. How did the Cold War impact the repression on the left here at home? After World War II, you had... ...in Canton, Ohio. He said, Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder. The feudal barons of the Middle Ages, the economic predecessors of the capitalists of our day, declared all wars, and their miserable serfs fought all battles taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut one another's throats for the profit and glory of the lords and barons. They alone declare war, yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose, you certainly, above all others, have the right to decide the momentous issue of war or peace. For these words alone, Debs was arrested, convicted, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. The charge? Obstructing recruitment. Many others who did nothing but speak against the war met the same fate. During the patriotic hysteria, the Espionage Act was expanded into the most repressive law in U.S. history. The Sedition Act read, Whoever shall willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or advocate, teach, defend, or suggest the doing of any of the acts, shall be punished. Over 1,500 people were arrested under this law. Those convicted faced up to 20 years in prison. Everything and everyone was a target. Books and feature films were seized by the government. Every postmaster in the country was under orders to monitor all mail and refused to mail newspapers and magazines deemed unloyal. For those who were open communists, well, they were just arrested. Under the Smith Act, it was deemed illegal for anyone to be a member of the Communist Party. And in a surprise attack, the state arrested everyone who held a leadership position in the party. All of them were sent to prison. Over a hundred were convicted of being communists and given sentences of up to six years, jailed for nothing but their beliefs. During this period, 5,000 communists were forced to flee the country. More than a thousand went to prison. The climate was such that anyone who even leaned to the left was completely persecuted. But just to show how far it would take things in the legal system, the U.S. government went beyond hard prison sentences. In 1951, Communist Party members Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were found guilty of being spies. 
But their sentences would be much different than their predecessors. The judge convicted them not for espionage, but for the murder of all the American soldiers who had been sent to die in Korea. On June 19, 1953, they were executed. It seems like there had been waves of anti-communism before World War II, and after World War II, it seemed like anti-communism was pretty much locked in. How did the Cold War impact the repression on the left here at home? After World War II, you had... Well, people, that's it for today. That's all the time I got for my peeps, my fans, and my therapy. My walk is over. I did my shopping. I got some choice um, reduced food for my family. And, you know, combining sports with shopping is pretty awesome. Um... So we're combining a whole bunch of different things here. Learning, sharing knowledge, therapy, shopping, and sports. Like, what could be better? And getting some fresh air, too. Yeah, I had to wear a jacket today because it was cold. So listen, people, if you made it to the end of this podcast, thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. And um, I'll see you in the next episode.